Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. If you were to have the opportunity to sit down with King Solomon and pick his brain about his observations of humanity, one of the things that he would probably tell you over the course of your conversation is that uh, the world as he sees it essentially only has three people in it. Uh, every human being falls under the category uh, of one um, title, if you would, if you want to hand out labels to people. And Solomon would say there is the wise, there is the foolish, and there is the wicked. And the reason why we know that Solomon would say that is because we have his writings before us in the Bible. It says that he penned over 3,000 Proverbs, a great number of which we have recorded for us in the book of Proverbs. We also have the book of Ecclesiastes. And what we see of Solomon is as he talks about humanity, he segregates into those three categories. There are the wise, there are the foolish, and then there are the wicked. And so if you were to take Solomon's definition of those, and you were to ask, okay, we'll elaborate, Solomon, who is the wise man, who is the fool, and who is the wicked? What he would tell you, and again, just uh, pulling from his own writings, is he would say that the wise person, the wise man, is the one who listens, the one who learns, the one who prepares his way, the one who makes adjustments according to what he learns and what he hears, and the person who can self-correct without consequences. He would say that the wise person essentially is the learn-it-all, the one who searches out for understanding, who doesn't claim to have it all figured out, and that is constantly trying to improve. That's the wise person in a nutshell. If you were to say to Solomon, okay, well, tell me who then is the fool? He would say, well, the fool is a person who is impulsive, a person who's self-willed or self-guided, self-directed, a person who walks and lives after their imaginations, and a person who doesn't listen to anybody. Essentially, the fool is the know-it-all, the one who thinks they've got it all down and that they have no need of correction. Now, Solomon would be careful to say at this point that someone who is classified as a fool, at least by his definition, is not necessarily bad. It isn't necessarily bad if a person is a fool. A fool isn't wicked. They're just foolish. And the issue with a fool is that they need consequences in order to get their path straightened out. There is hope for a fool, and Solomon will say that throughout his writings. But the fool is going to need consequences in order for those corrections to take place in their life. And so as you read about Solomon and his definition of the fool, he will say that stripes for the fool's back or a bruise for the fool or chastisement for the fool or the rod for the fool. And, and so essentially what he's saying is that if someone is foolish, then they're just slower to understand the right way to go and they have to get themselves into trouble and they need to face consequences in order for correction to happen in their life. They might get it eventually. They're just taking the long way around the barn. That's the fool. The third person that Solomon sees in the world is what he calls or classifies as the wicked. And the wicked person, they're not the wise. They're not the fool. They're just hell-bent on evil. 
They're not going to get it right if you tell them. They're not going to get it right if they go through consequences and punishment. There is nothing that's going to straighten out the path of the wicked person. They have dug their heels in that they're going to live the way they want to live. And no amount of correction, pain, or chastisement is going to change that. And so there isn't much hope for the wicked as Solomon uh, sees him. He's just wicked. Now, for you and I, we're Christians. I think on a Wednesday night, the majority of us at least, we hear the great call of our God in the scripture that we want to be those that fall in the category of the wise. Now, not all of us automatically fall into that. I know probably, transparently, there's probably a little bit more fool in me than there is wise man. Because often it takes a little bit of correction. I have to get in my own way a few times before I get it right. Hopefully I am. But the goal and the desire, the will of God for every one of us, is that we walk in wisdom. That's the call of God. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5, Solomon was the writer, inspired by the Spirit of God. He gives us this command. He says, get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. Again, in verse 7, he says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all you're getting, get understanding. In chapter 16, verse 16, Uh, He says, again, that we're to have wisdom. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding rather than chosen silver? Even into the New Testament, the call is declared again. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, the Apostle Paul tells us to walk in wisdom. Walk again being a symbol for the way that we live our lives. And so we're called to walk in wisdom, to absorb it, to be those that recognize that we don't know everything, that we don't have it all together, and to be those that learn as much as we can, absorb as much as we can, and then self-correct. Look at our lives, assess what does God say versus how do I live, what do I do, who am I as a person, and then make the adjustments prayerfully allowing God to make changes in us that we might be classified in the eyes of God as those that are wise. And so as we come to chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes and we're looking at Solomon's quest to find the purpose for life, what he's going to do for us tonight is he's going to unfold for us five different areas of life. And he's going to provide for us insight into how we can walk in wisdom in each of those five areas. And I've classified them uh, kind of according to parts of the body that symbolize areas of the life. And so he's going to begin talking to us about our heart, having wisdom in our heart. Second of all, our hands and that is what we do, and then our feet, that is the way that we live or the way that we walk, and then our mouth or our speech, that is what we say, and then finally our household, the, the priorities and the way that we order are uh, basically, it's going to come down to finances in the context of what he says, but basically the way that we manage ourselves in that way. And so he's going to talk to us in those five areas, and he's going to give to us wisdom, and hopefully we are the wise, and we can hold up our lives against what he says, and we can make the adjustments where necessary. Now, one word of preface before we get into the text, and that is that I poured over this chapter 
in several different translations of the Bible. You know, the King James, the New King James, the NIV, the New Living Tra Translation, the, the NASB, New American Standard. Uh, you know, I went through a bunch of them, and the thing that struck me was how vastly different each one of those translations is in the way this text is laid out. And so if you're reading tonight along with me from a translation other than the King James, you're going to say, whoa, that's not what my version says. And I recognize that. And so what I did is I actually went to the original language and looked for which one was the best. And what I found was is that the King James, which oftentimes we blame it for a lack of clarity, uh, does bring the most clarity to what Solomon is seeking to say. And so those verses will be up on the screen, um, and, and some of the differences I'll highlight and point out as we go. But uh, just so that you kind of understand, if you see a difference in what's in your lap based on what comes up on the screen, um, it, it is kind of a, a tongue-tying or mind-tying chapter at first glance. And so I understand where the translators got a little bit lost. But he begins with the heart in verse 1, and he says this. He says, dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So does a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. And so the idea is that you have a very valuable uh, batch of perfume. It has gone to great lengths um, by those that prepare such things to make sure for its purity and its value. And yet there is something in it that has defiled it and taken something that for a long time was cultivated and prepared, but now it's been ruined by the corruption of an ingredient or two that absolutely do not belong in it. It doesn't matter how valuable it was, it has lost its value because of what has been introduced into the potion. And he takes that little parable and he kind of equates it with human reputation. And so you can have someone who has a lifetime of preparing this beautiful um, reputation, this beautiful character, this beautiful, um, you know, thing, substance that comes out of a person's life. And there can be at any given time something introduced into the mix of that person's life that completely ruins all of the good that they have laid down for all of the years of them laying it down. And how many times do we see that this happens in the world and in life? It's someone who was very careful to walk uprightly and to do the right thing for years and years and years and has built a name and, and has built a reputation, but then they decide to leave their wife after 25 years, and though they're the richest man in the world uh, many billions of times over, but they choose to introduce something into what would be a legacy of, uh, uh, of something to be applauded, and they ruin it because there's a flaw in the character because there was something way deep down under the surface in the foundation that wasn't right, and thus all of the good is erased, unless, of course, I still get my goods in two days or less, then it doesn't matter so much, maybe they get a pass, you know. I'm just joking, of course. But what's the issue and why does this happen? He says in verse 2, here's why. He says, a wise man's heart is at his right hand, but a fool's heart at his left. And the idea here, some people have tried to make this political, 
No, I don't think Solomon was a part of a two-party system where the right represented one thing and the left represented something else. This isn't a political statement. Essentially, we all know that by and large, for the most part, amongst humanity, the right hand is the favored hand. There, are, um, there is a margin of the population that is left-handed that favors the left, but the majority are right-handed. It's the working hand. It's the hand of diligence. And what Solomon is saying to us here is that the wise man or woman is a person whose heart, the issues of the deepest part of the life, the source of life that no one else can see, out of which everything else flows, that that is, should be, in the wise person's context, in the right hand. That is, I'm to be diligently keeping watch over my heart. Now, why? Because the Bible tells us In another place, it's in the um, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Solomon wrote it, and he said, keep your heart or watch your heart with all diligence. Why? For out of it are the issues of life. Jesus elaborated on this in Matthew's gospel in chapter 15 during one of his interactions that he was having with the Pharisees. They were criticizing Jesus for not washing his hands before he ate. And Jesus is correcting them and saying, listen, to eat with unclean hands is not what defiles a man. His his response to them in verse 19, he says, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unclean hands defiles not a man. In other words, the things that come out of our heart or the things that come out of our life have their origin in our heart. And so if someone has evil thoughts, or if someone is a murderer, or if someone is an adulterer, or if someone is given to sexual sin, or they're a thief, or they're a liar, or they are a blasphemer, and they just have a wretched attitude about everything in life, what Jesus is saying is that those behaviors that manifest in someone's life outwardly began with an issue in the heart that was unchecked and unkept. And so the Bible tells us that we're to keep our heart in our right hand. There's to be a diligence about the way we watch what's going on in our heart, what we're allowing into our heart, and the little seeds of what we allow come out of our heart. And we're to keep watch over those things because it's possible for us to ruin an entire lifetime of good character in one moment of poor judgment. And so he says, a wise man's heart is in his right hand, but a fool's is neglected. Yea, also, when he that is a fool walks by the way, his wisdom fails him, and he says or shows to everyone that he is a fool. Here's the bottom line, church. Is that what you and I do, what we believe, what we take in, what we allow in the ear gate, in the eye gate, or the mind gate, what we align ourselves with socially or politically or otherwise, What we think, what we say, all of those things matter, and all of those things have their origin in our heart. And I ask you, when's the last time you've just put your your heart through the check, through the defrag, and you've just allowed assessment to be made of what's going on in your heart? Do you look after your heart? How do we do that? We do it in the Word of God. We allow the Word of God and the values of God to reveal the difference between God's heart and our heart. 
We do it through prayer as we see things in us that don't belong there. We lay them at the altar of the foot of the cross and we ask God to crucify those things and to change us and make us clean on the inside. We allow assessment to be made, comparison between what is right and what is real inside of me. And I don't ignore it or excuse it, but I ask God to check it and change it. That's how I keep my heart. And Solomon says that the wise person will do it. Not just so that we are well now, but so that we finish well in the long run. He moves on from the heart to the hand in verse 4. Um, he said, now in the context of this, of course, the greater context of it, puts the reader in the ruler's seat in this. What does he say? He says, if the spirit of the ruler rise up against you, leave not your place, don't quit. If your boss gets angry at you for something that you've done, don't just take your briefcase and quit and leave. For yielding pacifies great offenses. Two principles he's going to give to us here. The first is, of course, just that of maintain persistent humility. Listen, if you get yourself in a place where you've gotten in trouble, don't just quit and leave. If the spirit of someone who's over you has been stirred up against you, don't let it ignite your pride. Don't mirror the thing that probably got you into trouble in the first place. But rather just receive it patiently and the thing that was risen up against you will eventually be pacified with time because yielding pacifies great offenses. Just be persistent and wait. Don't just quit and leave. Then the second principle he gives us in verse 5 through 7. He says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun as an error that proceeds from the ruler. Now put yourself in the ruler's seat on this one, and here's the wisdom. He says that folly is set in great dignity and the rich sit in low place. I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. Now, understand this contextually, what Solomon is saying to you and I, and I want to just, for, for you and I to understand, is that in the body of Christ, in the New Testament context, every single one of us here are called to rule. Every one of us are called to be leaders. When you just think about Jesus for a minute and the ministry of Jesus amongst his disciples, he didn't call people to follow him for the sake of having followers. He called people to follow him for the sake of raising up leaders. He was seeking to thrust them upward so that they would be able to become models of what he was and then be able to lead others as well. And that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is God identifying us, then developing us, and then empowering us. That's what he does. He raises up leaders, and then he calls us to go and do something with the authority and the gifts that he's given to us. And so here's what he's saying here in this. He's saying, beware this error as you lead. And this is something that every one of us has to watch out for. Here's what it is. It's that rather than in our leading of others or our discipleship of others... Instead of identifying, developing, and empowering others, lifting them into a place of authority, that we make the mistake of identifying, developing, and then controlling. And there's a big difference between the two. Because what Jesus does is he imparts authority and he says, now go bear fruit. But someone who controls, they impart tasks and they hold or lord over and they hang on. And there's a consequence. There's something that happens when people do that. And it's something that you've probably seen in your life. Is that when leaders, rulers, 
when they exercise an iron fist and an arm of authority, what happens is that people with the capacity to lead leave. And the people that are weak stay. And whatever is being led gets weaker. An organization or a place of employment or a family or kids or anything else. The call that we have is to empower and then release and let people move in a realm of authority. Otherwise, you have a scenario like Solomon paints here. I want to put the verses up in the New Living Translation just to bring clarity to the context from verse 5. It says, There is another evil that I have seen under the sun that kings and rulers make a grave mistake. Here it is. When they give great authority to foolish people and low positions to people of proven worth. I have seen servants riding horseback like princes and princes walking like servants. When you have an insecure leader, they're afraid of powerful people. And so they give them low positions and then they put incompetent people in authoritative positions for the sake of feeling like they're in control. But Solomon says it's a great mistake, it's a great error. I love Solomon's example and David's example in the Bible. They found the most competent people and then they gave them great authority. And that's what you and I are to do. I want you to think about this, dad and mom, when you think about how you raise your kids. We are not called to control them and mold them into what we think they should be. We're called to unfold and empower them to be what God has made them to be and to thrust them upward over and beyond ourselves. See, the legacy of a leader, and again, we're all leaders, is not what we accomplish in our lives, but rather it's who we develop. Our fruit grows on other people's trees, and one day we're going to pass the baton of our life onto a generation that comes. And we can either now make them stronger and equip them for that, or we can hold them down. And I pray that you and I would have the wisdom of Jesus. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, greater works than the works that I have done will you do because I go to my Father. He wanted to thrust us upward. And then he gives us the same call to others. Lift people up. Push them upwards. You go down. The way up is down in the kingdom of God. And so he gives us his wisdom of the hand in verses 4 through 7. He goes on in verse 14, and he begins to talk to us now about the foot. That's what comes next. Notice what he says, or I'm sorry, verse 8 rather. It says that he that digs a pit shall fall into it and whoso breaks a hedge or a fence, a wall, a serpent will bite him. And whoso removes stone shall be hurt therewith and he that cleaves or splits wood will be endangered thereby. If the iron or the axe head be blunt and he do not wet the edge or sharpen it, Then must he put more strength, but wisdom is profitable to direct. And surely the serpent will bite without enchantment, and a babbler is no better. What he gives us in these four verses is he gives to us six symbols that represent character-defining actions in our life. Things that we can do that will make or break our character and what we become. Six symbols. They are the pit, the fence... Stones, wood, firewood, an axe, and a flute. Now, he uses the pit 
in verse 8, and he says, he that digs a pit will fall into it. Now, the pit represents manipulative, situational engineering. And here's the idea, is that you see someone who you perceive as a threat, and to remove the possibility of their threat in your life, what you do is you try to sabotage their success. You dig a pit, you cover it over with big palm leaves, you put a lion in the bottom of it, and then you say, hey, let's go for a walk. And then they innocently fall in and you say, oh my, how in the world did that happen? It's manipulating circumstances, situations, engineering it, trying to work the angles to better your position and to knock someone else down. But Solomon says there's a consequence of doing that, is that is that if you dig a pit, you're going to fall into it. Now, I think if you want a really good illustration of what this looks like in real life, just watch any episode of Seinfeld. Because the, the entire premise of that show was people digging pits for other people and then them falling into it themselves. You know, like George Costanza has to pretend he's got cancer for eight months because of a little lie that he thought would help him in some way and now it's actually hurt him. It's that whole thing of just trying to manipulate things for our favor. My wife said something to me last night that just like was an arrow. It stuck in my heart. I was so thankful for that she said it. She just said that God's love language is trust. It's such a simple phrase, but it just resonated so deeply with me, is that when we choose to trust God in the areas of our life that we're worried or anxious or fearful, that translates to God to love, that we just choose to trust Him. And sometimes we think we need to manipulate situations and circumstances, that we need to do things to improve or protect our position in a given way or a given place. But that's just not true. We have a Father who sees, knows, and cares and we can put our trust in him, and he watches out for us. It's his love language. He then talks about the fence or the hedge, and what it represents is moving boundaries for the sake of convenience. I heard a phrase one time that I'll never forget. I, it comes to mind frequently, and I'm so thankful for it. It was actually, I don't know who said it first, but I heard it from Warren Wearsby, and he said, before you knock down a wall, find out why it was built there in the first place. Some have used the word fence. Before you take out a fence, make sure you know why it was put there in the first place. And that's exactly what Solomon is saying here. He's saying, listen, if you break a hedge, if you break down a wall, then you're probably going to get bit by a serpent. Find out why that wall was built, what it's protecting you from, or what it's holding up. And then after you have determined in every way that it's an unnecessary barrier, then proceed with caution. I think what we're doing in the United States of America in these days is we're removing a lot of walls that were built for a reason. And, and, and again, I know you think I'm going somewhere with that, but I'm not. I think one of the walls that we're tearing down as a nation right now is, is in the, this arena of the legalization of marijuana. There's a reason why marijuana is not legal. There's a reason why there were, those laws were erected and established and those things were put in place. And what we're doing is we're foolishly tearing down a wall that we don't understand why it was there completely. But trust me, somewhere behind it, there's a serpent. And it's going to come home. It's going to bite us. In some way, we're going we're to regret doing that. Another thing is this whole concept of gender fluidity. I was talking with someone who's in school to be a teacher. And they were sharing with me some of the things that they have to learn and then agree to. And that is that there are now six active pronouns 
that are just so long. I mean, it's so non-binary gender number one. You know, you have to call someone that if that's, you know, what they want to be called, you know. And these whole things, what we're doing is we're removing barriers. Listen, God set these up. Him, her, he, she. I mean, these are very cut and dry, simple things that are very biologically viable and definable. I mean, this is clear science. And, and, and so what we're doing, though, is we're tearing walls down and not taking into consideration why those walls were built up and not thinking about what are the effects on the other side of not having these barriers in place. Solomon says, beware when you take down a wall that you don't get bit by a serpent. The third is stones. It represents, a lot of the translations here said quarries. Hey, that quarry stones are going to have a stone fall on their head. That's not really the best idea of it. The stones that you read about in this context were the stones that would separate between property lines. So uh, when you would um, prep a field, you would take the rocks, you would build a fence right on your border, and it represented the border between two. And so the moving of the stones is the moving of the boundaries or moving of the goalposts is something that we might say. And the idea behind it here is those that change the rules in the middle of the game. And so it might be like for serving Solomon's illustration, that you buy a piece of property and you survey the land with the seller and you look at exactly what it is that you're buying. But then in the middle of the night, while you're contemplating or getting ready to go to contract, he goes out and he moves the boundaries inward or outward or something like that so that by the time you close on the deal, the boundaries are different or the terms of the contract are different than what you first agreed upon. And the idea what Solomon is saying here is, listen, don't be a person who's inconsistent in your character and that's constantly changing the boundaries, changing the rules in a given situation. The Apostle Paul talks to fathers. And to fathers, one of the things that Paul says is he says, don't provoke your children unto wrath. And one of the ways that fathers classically provoke their kids to wrath is that they constantly change the rules. That one day something's acceptable, but then the next day that same something isn't. Or the one day something is not acceptable, but then there's compromise and it's suddenly allowable. And what it does is it sows confusion and hesitation into the heart and the mind of a child. And it can happen in all kinds of life. You could have a boss that's constantly moving the goalposts. They say, this is the direction we're going, or this is the way that we're going to do things. And then the next day it's totally different. They've just moved the boundaries. They've moved the rocks. What Solomon's saying to you and I is don't be that kind of person. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just have integrity. He talks next about those that split wood. And the idea in Solomon's day would be kind of like what we talk about is splitting hairs. Now, we, we split firewood. They probably did in those days. I mean, you want it to season. You want surface area and dry time. I don't think he was talking about those that are splitting wood for a fire. I think what he's talking about here is that when there's something that's supposed to be one thing... Don't split it in half and make it two things. Don't split hairs. So how do people do that in, in, in kind of the applicable context of walking in wisdom? Well, sometimes we like to split hairs. So we take something that is something, but we call it something else. We split it in half. Well, no, 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 that's not plagiarism, me stealing those words or writing that down. That's research. Oh, wow, that sounds good. You know, <laughs> it's not adultery. It's an affair. See, I'm splitting hairs. I'm taking something what it is, and I'm making it two different things. Well, what I did is not exactly that. What I did was really kind of on this side of it, which is the righteous side of it. I wasn't being critical when I came down on you like that and practically killed you. I was coaching. 
You see, if I was being critical, that's negative. But if I'm coaching you, then you should be actually thankful for me making you feel this big, you know, kind of a thing. And what he's saying is don't be that kind of person. Don't split hairs. You're going to be hurt by it. Next, he talks about the axe. The axe in the Bible represents your cutting edge. He says, if the axe is dull, you've got to use more strength. But take five minutes, sharpen your chainsaw, and you're going to get a whole lot more work done. And the idea is for you and I, in our walk, in our life, is that we should be on the front side of the change curve that we need skill for. In other words, are you constantly getting better at what you do? Are you constantly refining your skills that God has given to you and cultivating and making your gifts more fruitful? See, and you should do that. Keep getting sharper. Don't rest further back because you're going to have to put more strength. Be flexible. Be yielding. And then finally, he talks about in uh, verse 11, the flute, the, the charmer's flute. He says, surely the serpent will bite without enchantment, and a babbler is no better. And what it represents is sometimes you just need wisdom in dealing with certain types of people. The people are the serpent in this one. And I don't know if you know someone that if you don't approach them exactly the right way, they are going to strike. And it's venomous when they do, you know. And what he's saying is that there are some times that you just need to learn how to deal with certain people. You need to learn how to play the song that they dance to. Play it. Learn it. Figure it out. <laughs> he's saying the wise will make the correction and they'll be thankful that they did. And so all of this, verses 8 through 11, the symbols representing our walk, all of it in a nutshell, what Solomon is saying is, listen, be upright and have integrity. Don't manipulate your situation. Don't move boundaries. Don't move the goalposts. Don't split hairs. Stay sharp and be wise with people. That's what he's saying in our walk. He moves on to the mouth in verses 12 through 14, and I'll read you these verses. He says, the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is mischievous madness. A fool also is full of words. A man cannot tell what shall be and what shall come after him. Who can tell him? In other words, if you are around a person who just talks too much, you can just put a label right on them in your mind. You know what they are. I want to play a little clip for you that just illustrates this better than I can with any words of my own. Real quick. One guy talking plenty for everybody. Me, myself, right? And then I, and then myself, right? Me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I because I was talking about myself. And then me, 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 me. Do you guys, do you guys know that guy? The, the meme, the, he's called the me monster. <laughs> yeah. That's, by the way, that's Brian Regan. He's a comedian. If you ever just need a little therapy on the side, five minutes of Brian Regan, you'll feel better. He's like 99.9% .9 clean. I think there's something that he did like 20 years ago where he uses the word hell, not in the biblical context. Otherwise, you know, that's, that's free. But anyways, you guys understand. The person that just talks entirely too much, Solomon says, don't be that person. You know, just be wise with what comes out of your mouth. And then finally, verses 15 through 20, wisdom in keeping 
our house or our household. He says that the labor of the foolish wearies every one of them because he knows not how to go to the city. Woe to thee, O land, when your king is a child and your princes eat in the morning. But blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes eat in due season for strength and not for drunkenness. Now, just as a clue in, this has nothing to do with food, nutrition, or meal timing. That's not the idea. I mean, classically, from the beginning, as far back as we know until the present day, people have eaten roughly three meals a day, give or take, according to needs and culture. So it isn't a thing where it's like, well, if you're wise, then nobody eats breakfast, and we all just work all day and starve ourselves and then eat at night. That's not the idea at all. But he's talking about the context is your land and those that rule over the land. And the idea behind eating is that of spending. You know, typically you would work and then you would eat. You know, in that context you would earn and then you would spend in order to fill or feed your family or yourself. You know, and so the idea what he's talking about here is he's saying woe unto the land that is spending before it earns. Or woe unto the country, you could say, that has over $20 trillion in debt. That, that, that could be one context of what he's saying here. What he's saying is, but blessed is your land, in verse 17, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes eat in due season for strength and not for drunkenness. So to eat for strength means that you're spending what you have already earned for something that adds strength to the nation. And what we know is that Spending and deficit spending doesn't strengthen a nation, it weakens a nation. And spending for entitlements that don't provoke people to be productive weakens a citizenship, it doesn't strengthen a citizenship. And that's what Solomon is saying in its pure context, but in a personal context, if we want to take what he's saying, is he's saying, listen, learn how to manage your life in such a way that you're not living beyond your means. In other words, get in the habit of providing ahead of time for the things that you need and then spending discretionately upon things that are going to add strength and value to your life and not frivolously on things that will help not at all and leave you in a position of weakness. Be wise in the way that you order your priorities in your household. He says in verse 18, By much slothfulness the building decays, and through idleness of hands, the house drops through. Be diligent. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes merry, but money answers all things. In other words, listen, when you're thinking about the priorities of your life and the reason why you get up every day and go eke out the living that you're eking out, what he's saying is let your priorities be right. Don't live for the merry moment. Don't live for the sip of wine that you're going to have at the end of the day that's going to help you unwind. If the thing that drives and motivates you is the temporary release or relief or the moment of partying and celebration, he's saying that's going to lead to poverty and destitution. But rather, if you're earning a living because in its proper context, you know that you need it for the things that are essential for survival, for your family, for giving in the kingdom of God and expanding what's fruitful and productive. He says that money answers all things. Now he's going to talk more about that in the next chapter. In chapter 11, Solomon, the richest man that ever was, is actually going to tell us how to make money. Very interesting uh, segment of scripture that we get next week. 
But he closes the chapter in verse 20 by saying, Curse not the king. No, not in your thought, and curse not the rich in your bedchamber, for a bird of the air will carry the voice, and that which has wings will tell the matter. In other words, just mind your business, put your head down, and do your work. Just be, be diligent, be busy. Don't complain about other people. Isn't it amazing? I mean, there's truth in what he says there, isn't it? Have you ever said something, and you, have you ever said something, and you just knew as soon as it came out of your mouth that it was going to be almost instantly carried to the one place you don't want those words to go? It's almost without fail that that happens, and it happens so incredibly fast. You're like, how in the world does this happen? It's an amazing thing, because we say all kinds of things all the time that we wish would be carried, and we wish would stick, and they're not carried, and they don't stick. But then we say the one thing that we wish we could put back in, and it's like, whoa, it's all, it's viral. You know, it's everywhere. Happens with my kids. You know, I'm telling them, Jesus loves you. He's got a plan for your life. Follow him. Walk in his ways. You know, Bible, we're going through scripture, scripture, scripture. I'm like, and I said, what did we learn last night? They're like, I don't know. You talk, Dad, but I don't remember what you said, you know. But then, then I stab myself with a knife washing the dishes, and I go, ah, and words come out. They remember those words, you know. It's a funny thing. Human nature, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> we, we finish where we began, and that's this. It all starts with the heart. Solomon said, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The consequences of ignoring what Solomon is saying to us here in chapter 10 are a tarnished reputation, an inconsistency of our character that causes distrust and hesitancy of those whom we seek to lead. A constant consequence of foolish choices, the consequences that come naturally. Debt, distress, and decay in our personal lives, in our families, in our homes. And of always struggling because we feel like we have the wrong priorities. And the reason why Solomon is saying the things that he's saying to us tonight is because he doesn't want us to have that kind of life that kind of character, and that kind of feeling. We read in a, a, a previous segment of Scripture about David and his mighty men. Remember when God was raising up David and he was just a fugitive? But it says that there was a, a band of men. There were 400 men. It tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2, it says that everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves to David and became, he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. And so these men that were kind of the antithesis of everything that Solomon is talking about here, they had potential, and they would become great, but they were just all mixed up and messed up. And they had a good leader, and they started to follow and walk with David. What's amazing is as you track the progress and growth of these 400 men, they became David's greatest mighty men. Those that slew giants and killed, you know, Egyptians and just did, did these amazing and incredible exploits. And maybe you're here tonight and you feel like, you know what, discontented, in debt, distressed, that's me. That describes my life. In fact, a lot of the things that we read tonight define my life. So what's the response? You're here, maybe you're saved, but you say, my heart isn't kept well and there's some things in me that need to change some things that aren't right. 
For you, the response to this message is to put your heart in the proper hand. Put your heart in God's hand. I want to read you a prayer that Paul prayed to the church in Ephesus. It's in chapter 1, verse... I don't even know where. 15. Paul prayed this for the church in Ephesus. He said, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love to all the saints, I cease not to give thanks for you, mentioning you in my prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding power of his greatness or exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He prayed a similar thing over the Colossian church. He said this to the Colossians. He said, for this cause, since the day we heard it, we don't cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding and that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father which has made us meet or fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Would you guys stand with me and let me pray this over you tonight? That should your heart you find tonight be an unkept thing, that maybe is in your left hand, that maybe tonight God would give you the ability to move it into the right hand. And that there would be a change in the way that we live. Father, we just pray tonight, Lord, as we conclude, as we consider, Lord, as we think on these things. And we recognize that your will and desire for us is that we might live in abundance, that we might live in freedom, and that we might live in blessing and purpose. And so tonight we've heard many things, O oh Lord. Some things we find we do well, some maybe not so well. But I pray tonight, Lord, that you would give to us a spirit of wisdom. You would give us a spirit of understanding. You would give us a spirit of revelation and the knowledge of you and of your son and of your ways. We ask you, Lord, that you would help us where we're weak. You'd help us where we're foolish. You'd help us where we're blind. That, Father, you'd help us to see clearly and you'd help us to make adjustments where needed. Change us, Lord, from the inside out. We don't be those, we don't confess to be those that have it all together to know everything. We're those that have great need. We know that you're the great need meter. So tonight, Lord, for the church gathered here, for those that are watching and listening, I pray in Jesus' name that there would be a fresh infusion of Holy Spirit life in every heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us insight, and that you would make changes in us. And so we thank you, Lord, for these things. And I pray tonight for any that don't know you here, that the spirit of your son, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of forgiveness would permeate the shell. That the defenses would unfold and break down. And that, Jesus, you would be in every life. That you would save those that would call on you in faith. And that you would give grace and glory.
We trust you. We look to you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.